uh, we're going to take that thread from Sunday. On Sunday, we talked out of Titus how we are a people for God's own possession. He chose you. He liked you. For some reason, he picked you. You know, he picked us all. And the Bible says not because of anything we did, not because of any deeds of righteousness that we did in the flesh, but he chose us based on his kindness, his kindness, his mercy, his love. He picked you. But then it says we need to respond to that kindness. He says he wanted a people for his own possession that would be zealous for good works. That be zealous for good works, even though he didn't pick you because of your good works. Even though he didn't pick you because of your past good works. And guys, he didn't pick you because of your future good works either. He picked you out of his kindness. He saved you out of his kindness, out of his love. Nevertheless, we've been saved not just from something, but to something. And the Bible goes on to say we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared for us beforehand that we may walk in them. Back to the section in Titus, you know, he goes on and says, I want you to, he says, we were saved by his kindness, his love, and the washing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. He says, I want you to remind people of these things so that they will be careful to engage in good deeds, in good works. Now, that's, that's important, and that's where we're going to kind of pick up from uh, tonight, that your life is no longer your own, and that's a good thing. We're no longer slaves. We know that, right? Yes. I'm not a slave. That's right. I'm a son. Yes. There's a very distinct difference between being a slave and a son. You know, and the Bible says very clearly that God does not view us as slaves anymore. He views us as sons. And yet every single writer of the letters in the New Testament, I'm talking about the letters, every single writer. So you got Peter, Paul, James, John, Jude, all of these guys at some point in one of their letters say, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Bondservant is just a nice cleaned up word for slave. So how do we reconcile that? I'm no longer a slave. The Bible says very clearly It says, we have not received a spirit of slavery, but we've received a spirit of adoption in which we cry out, Abba, Father. So clearly, your identity is no longer that you are a slave. You are a child of God. That's how he views you. And yet, as a free person, my life has been purchased. I lay my life down and I say, I am now a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He treats me like a son, but I will treat my own life like it's fully his. I'm not going to be that rebellious son that goes off to the city and says, I'll spend my inheritance. I'm going to be one of these that says, God, I know you treat me. I know for the rest of my life, you'll always treat me as your son, as your rightful heir, and I will receive it, and I will, I will treat you like my father. I will know you as my father, but I'm also going to say, my life is yours, and I'm going to have the same attitude that was in Jesus Christ. That's what Philippians 2 says, have the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus, who didn't think it would be robbery to be called equal with God. Nevertheless, he emptied himself, took on the form of a bondservant, even, and, and, and became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above all names. Here's what the scripture is saying. Have the same attitude as Jesus. Your identity in Christ is that you are a child of God. But our lives, we lay down freely and we take on the form of a bondservant. So you can be a son and a servant at the same time. God will always treat you as as his child. But we lay our lives down and say it's freely yours. So the scripture says, tell them that they were saved by the kindness of God. 
Not because of what they did, but because of his kindness. Tell them that they've been washed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And then tell them this so that they will be careful to engage in good deeds, in good works. Be careful to engage. And so that, that, that careful is your part here. That's, that's where you're getting involved. You know, as I quoted from Ephesians, God prepared good works for you. And it says he created you for those good works and he prepared the good works for you. You are a match made in heaven. You were meant to go together. You and the work God's called you to go together perfectly. So it would be a shame for you to spend the rest of your life just waiting to die and go to heaven, wouldn't it? Don't sound convinced. How can we convince you of this? Now, maybe you're just listening so intently. Wait, we have to talk back? That's not church that I grew up in. It would be a shame for you to just wait till your death or wait for the Jesus to come back and take you away from all this. We, the Bible says over and over again, we are supposed to be a people that are anxiously awaiting the return of Jesus. But if you're expecting the return of Jesus, there's a sense of urgency in your step. There's a sense of urgency in your life. If we are looking forward to the return of Jesus, then you're realizing that the time we have here is more valuable than you ever knew before you got saved. The time you have left, whether Jesus comes in our lifetime or right after, you have a limited time no matter what. And your time is getting shorter and shorter. And that shouldn't scare you, but that should give you a sense of urgency. The time is short. The time is short for our planet. The time is short for us. The time is now for us to fulfill the desire of our king and for us to step out in faith and say, I'm tired of wasting my life and my breath and my energy on little busy work. I've said this so many times before, but here in our part of the world, we view busyness like it's a badge of honor. We, we have learned, here's, here's how we do it. It's kind of a humble brag. We learn how to, somebody says, how are you? Oh, so busy. And, and we say it in such a way that, that I let you know I'm taxed by it. Oh, it's wearying, I'm so busy. But at the same time, there's a twinkle in my eye because you know I'm working. So you know I'm not lazy, right? I'm busy. I'm working hard. So I, I have to say it in such a way that I look like, ooh, it's a heavy burden I must bear, but who else but me can bear it? And then you'll say, you'll feel sorry for me, and yet you'll view me as some sort of hero because I'm working hard. But there will be people that go to their grave having worked hard and done very little for the kingdom of God. Even things that we thought were for the king. If it didn't come from the king, we're wasting our time. Unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor, labor in vain. You know, he's not saying unless the Lord builds the house, people sitting on the couch are wasting their time. He says the people actually building something are wasting their time. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that there's going to be a whole group of ministers that stand before him at the end of the day, and he says, where's your work? So we built a bunch of stuff. He said, well, it didn't last, did it? Because they didn't build on the foundation of Christ or they built with cheap materials instead of the materials that cost a bit more and take a bit longer. He says, you know, there will be people who did not build on the right foundation and they will build a whole bunch of stuff, but it won't stand the test of fire. And so at the end of the day, they'll stand before Jesus and it says they themselves will be saved as though through fire. You know what that means? 
It means you're in. Thank God you're in. You're going to rejoice that you're in, but you'll have nothing to show for your life here. What a shame that would be. Now, you, there'll be plenty of joy. Believe me, there'll be plenty of joy because you'll be in his presence forever. You'll be happy. You'll be full of joy. But there are crowns. There are wreaths. There is victory. There is a reward for the diligent. There's a reward for those that laid their life down. And I want to see that. I want the well done and good and faithful servant. I, want, I know that my salvation is in him. I know that his righteousness is given to me freely. I know when I stand before the judge, he'll look at me and say, you did, you're clean, you're good, you're not guilty. But I also want to stand before Jesus and he says, you did good. Look what remains of your life. I want that too. And you might say, well, you're getting greedy. You're gilding the lily. Why don't you just be happy you're going to heaven? Because the apostle Paul wasn't happy just to get to heaven. Because Jesus didn't seem to, to imply that we should just be happy with the bare minimum. I, and guys, if the bare minimum is getting to spend forever with him, the bare minimum is good. But he didn't leave you here. If that was his goal, which is to get you to heaven, like I've said so many times before, the moment you said Jesus is Lord, you gave your life to him, you, you, you fully gave everything to him, and you were born again, then he would have just raptured you then and there and ha- be done with it. You don't have time to mess anything up. You're in his presence. But he didn't. He left you here. There's a task to be accomplished. There's a race to be run. There's something at the end. And so Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my race, I've finished my course, and there's a crown waiting for me so I can die now. Do you realize that he could have died earlier, but he waited? You say, well, that doesn't sound right. I don't get to decide when I live or when I die. Well, Paul seemed to have a choice because in Philippians, I'm not saying he had a choice every time, but there was a point in his life where he says, I can't decide whether whether I should stay or I should go. Which seems to me that God kind of said, listen, bud, you want to stay, you can stay. You want to keep fighting, you can fight. You want to give up, you can give up. And he said, I, by the, it seems like halfway through the letter, he makes up his mind. Have you ever done that? As you're talking something out, you make up your mind. He says, if I go, I get to be with the Lord. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But then he says, but you know what? I've decided to stay for your benefit. Because if I were to stay on the earth, he says, it will mean for me fruitful labor. Hear that. Fruitful labor. See, that's what we're looking for in life. It's not just labor. Anybody can stay busy. And you can stay busy with your job, and you can stay busy with your, your, all your other commitments, or you can even stay busy with ministry-looking things. But unless you're busy about the master's business... And the master's business is not necessarily all these things that look like the master's business. The master's business is whatever he told you to do. Imagine you're, you're a, a foreman at a construction site. And somebody says, boss, I'm here to work. I mean, I'm here to do something. You say, you know what we need right now? We need somebody to carry all of those boards over there, over here. That's what we need. This guy says, yes, sir, I'm, I'm a hard worker. You'll see it. And you say, well, we can't get anything done until those things are over here. So get, get on it, bud. That's your job. And he picks up a hammer and he just starts hammering something. Well, he might be busy and he might be busy doing construction work, but he's not busy doing what you told him to do. That's a flaw, isn't it? That's a problem. His job might be short-lived. Doesn't matter how hard he hammers, how fast he works at that job. If he's not doing the job you told him to do, 
he's wasting his time. In the same way, I see a, there are a lot of believers, and I was one of them. When I was a young guy, I, I might still be young by some standards, but when I was really young, when I was a teenager, and I really got on fire for Jesus, I started to notice that there were opportunities opening for me and for my friends. Opportunities to speak at this youth group, opportunities to do this and do that. And at that point, nobody had ever asked me to do anything besides our own church. So at that point, I was like, well, every opportunity is a good one. I'm going to take them. And then you start getting more and more and more, and you realize you can't do everything. And all of a sudden, you have to come to the conclusion that it's not necessarily about what is permissible, but what is profitable. It's not just about what opportunities are in front of me or what doors are in front of me, but it's more about what doors did God open for me? And which doors is he commanding me to go through? As Paul says, I'm going to stay at Ephesus, for there is a wide door for what? Effective service. A wide door, which means I'm not like one of those, you know, video game characters that keeps just mindlessly walking into a wall. The door is wide open, but also on the other side of the door is effective service. Isn't that what you're looking for? Not just to be busy, but to be doing exactly what you're meant to be doing. We can all be busy, but in this short time, in this period of life, in this season of the kingdom of God, busy won't cut it. It's busy doing exactly what you've been told to do what you've been called to do, what you've been made to do. Because I know what, you, you, can do, you can copy your neighbor and do what they're doing. But if we believe that verse that he created you, you're his workmanship, he created you for good works, which he prepared for you beforehand that you may walk in them, there is a task you're gonna do better than anybody else. There is something for you, and, and it doesn't mean you can't do what someone else is doing. But you, you need to find out what it is in my life that I'm doing because this is what the Spirit of God is leading me to do. Now, understand, listen, some people take this to an extreme. And they show up at church and they say, how can I help? And you say, well, the ramp has a pile of snow on it. Can you shovel it? Oh, let me pray about it. <laughs> well, get over yourself. We all have to do stuff that doesn't feel like our major calling in life. You could take this to extreme. I don't feel called to shovel snow. I feel called to preach the gospel. Well, if you can't shovel snow, I'm telling you right now, you can't preach the gospel. Because right. <laughs> if you're such a hot shot that you have to have everybody open your door for you, carry your Bible, and do all that before you do anything, then you're not cut out for the ministry, <laughs> at least not the ministry that Jesus laid out. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to open the door for the minister or pick up their Bible. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if you can't be a servant, you can't be a leader. And so we have to learn that there are things we do that don't feel like our major calling in life, but they need to be done, so we'll get them done. But you also have to, have to be able to get to a point where you understand that God has put something in front of you, and he's put, there are other things put in front of you that aren't God, so you have to be more picky in these days. And the older and the more mature you grow in Christ, you'll have to say no to people and say no to things that, that are taking your time. Because time is short and time is valuable. So we're going to read this from 1 Corinthians um, chapter 9. And we're going to get a little peek in, inside the, the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 19, 1 Corinthians 9, 19, 
For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more. So there's a point to it, isn't there? You notice that he didn't do this so that people would like him more. Because in another letter, he says, if I were trying to please people, I couldn't be a bondservant of Christ. He's not making himself a slave to everyone so everyone likes him. Because if you've read through his life story, you know that didn't happen. But he is making himself a servant, a slave to all, so that he might win more to Jesus. What's his goal then? What would you say out of that sentence, what would you say his goal in life is? To win people. His goal is to win more. Can you imagine the reality crashing in on him? When Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, when Jesus heals him and saves him during his encounter with Ananias, as Jesus begins to reveal to him that this gospel is not just for Jews but for Gentiles as well, can you imagine through that process how it begins to sink in on him? As he begins to hear from God, it's not just for Israel, it's for everybody. Now that's a good revelation, isn't it? But think about it from his perspective. It's a great revelation that the gospel is for everyone. And by this gospel, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For in it lies salvation all that believe. In it is the power of God to salvation for all that believe. The gospel is the power of God. It'll save everybody if they'll believe it, is basically what he's saying. But imagine the reality of this. All of a sudden, he's realizing the gospel is for the whole world, and nobody's going to the whole world. All of a sudden, he's realizing, wait a second, the only reason, and you see it in Romans, how will they believe if they haven't heard? How will they hear if there's not a preacher? How will he preach unless he's been sent? Here's the point, guys. It's wonderful that that God has given us the gospel that will save everyone that believes. But if I don't get out and preach it, how will they believe if they can't hear? And how will they hear if nobody goes and preaches it to them? Can you imagine the urgency that he's starting to feel? If I don't go, if I don't go over to Asia Minor... If I don't go to Rome, if I don't go to Spain, if I don't go to these places, who's going to go? And sure, there would be people that would come after. But the longer, I mean, I, I know you get this because many of you, the moment God really put that desire in you for, to save people and to, and to preach the gospel, there's two sides to it. There's the joy of this is good news. Yes. I want to tell everybody, but there's the other side. There's the other side. The other side is this. If I don't preach it, they'll die. And that produces just as much urgency as the joy. And together, they're powerful. I'm not saying out of fear. I'm not saying you should be fearful. But that should give us urgency. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, knowing the severity of the Lord, we preach this gospel. We beg people be reconciled to God. What's he saying? He says, we know what judgment day is going to look like. We know that Jesus died so you'd be saved from the wrath of God because God is not willing that any should perish. He wants you to live. He wants you to be saved. But I know what's going to happen if you don't believe. And so I want to preach as much as I can. And by any means, I'm going to go and make myself a servant to anybody. He said, he said here, I have every right. And you see it later in his life, he took advantage of it. He said, I have every right to ask them for money because I'm, I'm there ministering. But he said, in this case, to this group of people, 
And he didn't say this everywhere, but he said it to them. He said, to this group of people, to these new believers, to these group of pagans, I won't ask for a thing. Because I want them to know I'm not after the money. I make myself a servant to them so that I may win more. That's the urgency he feels. And I want you to see what he says after this in, in verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. Which means if you have a hankering for bacon, but you're preaching to the Jews, it's way more important that you win these guys than you get your taste of bacon. Right? If you say, well, these are, these are rules I don't abide by anymore, that's fine. But what's more important to you, your little life's extra pleasures or winning these people to Jesus? There are things, guys, that I don't do, and I don't think there's anything wrong. There are clothes I wouldn't wear in certain countries. There's, there's, I mean, my, I, my sister probably would be able to tell you better than I would because it's, it's easy as a, as a man to not offend people with our dress. But I know we've gone into places, parts of the world where my sister, the other women on there, they had to dress differently than they dress here. And they don't dress immodestly here, but they had to dress differently. They had to dress uncomfortably in the sweltering heat. They had to be covered at all points. And you say, well, what an inconvenience. Is it worth a little inconvenience to save somebody? It's more than worth it. The Apostle Paul said this, all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. This is a question I find as you grow in Christ, you ask more and more. You see, when you're, when you're a new believer, often the question is, what's okay now, right? Like, you got saved out of the world. What can I do? What can't I do? And that's not a bad question to ask. And you have some people that will ask that question for the rest of their lives. I don't have a problem when someone's new and they're asking that question. I don't even have a problem with anybody asking that question. But if you are a mature believer and you keep saying, well, can I go this far? Can I do this? How far can I go before it's sin? There's something broken. Is your goal in life to see how close you can get? Or is your goal in life to please God? My goal in life isn't to see how close to the line I can get. Huh? My goal in line, life, is to use every breath, every moment for my king. And there is a reward to that, not just in the next life, but in this life. To know that you are pleasing to God, it seemed to make Jesus happier than anything else. Happier than food. My food, he says, when they offered him a snack. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you realize? Think about what food does for you. It makes you happy, doesn't it? It gives you energy. It gives you life. It, it, it gives you sustenance. And, and it's not that Jesus didn't need food. But he said, what's, what, right, what's driving me right now and what's more valuable to me than physical food right now is to do what God sent me to do. He said that at, the, at a moment where a whole city was about to come to him. He got so excited about that city, food wasn't the issue. I read about how it says when he went into the wilderness to fast. After 40 days, he became hungry. After 40 days, he became hungry? Does that sound strange to you guys? After 40 days of fasting, he starts to get a little hungry. 
When's the last time you went 40 days and said, I haven't eaten? <laughs> have, have I missed like 120 meals already? I think I have. I just got caught up in my work. He was so wrapped up in the Spirit of God. I'm not saying there wasn't any period of hunger there, but that intense hunger where it began to affect his mind didn't come for 40 days. Then he had to deal with it. Then he dealt with it. Then he was tempted, and he dealt with it. Something else. He says, to the Jews I became a Jew I might, so that I might win Jews. To those that are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. In verse 21, to those who are without the law as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that, and here's his reason, I may by all means, that means by any means necessary, any, anything I can do, by all means save some. All means means I will take advantage of every situation, Every tool I've got in my belt, every day that comes across my path, every opportunity I have, I will use anything and any, any method. By all means, I can save some. That's a man who loves people more than he loves himself. That's somebody who loves Jesus more than he loves himself. That's someone who loves the gospel more than he loves himself. And that's what we should aspire to. And he says this, I do all things. Look it up in the original language and all things still means all things. There's no loopholes here, guys. I do all things, everything in my life. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I might become a fellow partaker of it. It's a powerful thing. Every time I look at this verse, I analyze my own life. I would say I do a lot of things for the sake of the gospel. I'm not at the place where I'm saying every single thing I do is for the sake of the gospel. But I want to get there. I do. I really want to get there. And I wonder if you could ask yourself that question. How much of my time, how much of my life, how much of my energy, how much of my breath is for the sake of the gospel? You say, well, do I have to quit my job? I would argue that your job could very well be for the sake of the gospel depending on how you use it. Your job, if you're doing it for the Lord, is for the Lord. It's for his sake. But I do all things for the sake of the gospel. That means, that means he's having to make decisions all, every day. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why? Why am I ch- taking this job? Why am I moving here? Why am I, why am I starting this? Why am I doing that? Why am I saying yes to this? Why am I saying no to that? I'm doing everything I do is for the sake of the gospel. Because I want to become a partaker in it. What's he saying? There's a reward. And I want some. I want to I I step into that, that reward. That crown of life. That reward of the soul winner. I want to step in to Christ's inheritance. And here's what he says in verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? That's a deep revelation. (laughs) Do you hear what he says? Hey, you guys ever figured out that everybody running in a race is running in a race? Whoa, man. Like either that's really deep or really basic. I can't figure it out yet. He says everybody that runs in a race runs 
You see, we're all giving ourselves pats on the back for running in the race. He says, everybody's running in the race. You find that we give, sometimes, and I don't mean, I don't want to be hard on you, but, you know, sometimes we just, we, we congratulate ourselves for the most basic of things. Like, you know, I, I didn't go out and do this, and I could have. Well, very good. But he's saying, everybody who's running in the race is running in the race. Every, don't you know that everybody runs in a race? They all run. But he says, but only one receives the prize. Now, that doesn't mean I'm at competition with you. Like, this isn't the Hunger Games of Christianity, and one of us will survive and, and get the reward. No, but his point is this, that there's a difference between participation trophies and a victory trophy. I used to get so annoyed by participation. <laughs> Soccer, when they introduced, I remember when they introduced the participation trophy, and I remember getting it and thinking, this is insulting to me. We lost. You're not supposed to give me stuff when I lose. <laughs> like, we lost the game, and they gave me a trophy. And it was like, you looked at the trophy that the winner got, you looked at the trophy that the second place got, and you got a participation trophy. And I, I'm not against participation trophies, but I remember as a kid being so like, why do I get this? I didn't feel like I should get a, anything here. Don't give me a trophy for showing up. I want a trophy for winning. Don't give me a trophy for losing. Give me a trophy for winning. And he says here, you don't, you don't, you're not running so you can run. You're running so you can win and receive a prize. That's where it gets a bit tricky for us, isn't it? We think it's wrong to do something for a reward. Right? <laughs> We're like, we feel bad about that. But Hebrews says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that, believes must, he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligent, diligently seek him. So the only way to please God is to believe that he'll reward the diligent. So you're supposed to expect a reward. You're even supposed to, if Paul is a good example, I think he is, you're even supposed to look at it and say, I want that. That's not a bad thing. <laughs> you know? I'd serve Jesus if there was no reward. You know you would too. He gave his life for us. Yeah. Like he gave his life for us. We owe him everything. Right. But he says there's a reward for you yeah. if you'll do this. Yeah. And he wants you to want it. Figure that out. So then he says this, run in such a way that you may win. Yeah. Everybody's running, but are you running that you may win? Are you running and here's what he says in verse 25, and this is where it gets crystallized to me. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He goes on and he talks about Israel. He says, I don't want you to be unaware 
Brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, they passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we might not crave evil things as they craved. And he goes on and he talks about the fact that they gave in to stupid things, and so they missed out on the best that God had. He had a promised land for them. They missed out. Now, he's not saying you're going to miss heaven, but he's saying there's, you might miss a reward because you traded in something imperishable for something perishable. He goes on. He says, you shouldn't crave this. You should flee idolatry. He says in verse, um, verse 11, he says, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful. Now, this is what's so important. Because we always, I always have to be careful when I preach verses like this. Because there's always be somebody that sits in the crowd and goes, I guess I have to work harder, try harder, do better. And those aren't bad sentiments, but the problem is if you try to do that on your own, you will burn out, you'll fail, you'll stumble. Here's what he says, God is faithful. When you start to worry that you'll be disqualified, when you start to worry, what if I stumble? He says, don't you worry, God is faithful. Don't you be afraid of one temptation which comes across your path because God is faithful and he says this, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it, which means whatever you face in life, God has already provided a way of escape through it. He won't abandon you. He won't leave you. Don't get depressed and say, what if something comes that's too hard? Nothing will that he can't work through you and use you and deliver you from. There's not a temptation you have ever encountered that he doesn't have a way of escape. But let's skip back to chapter 9. Let's look back at that athlete who disciplines his body. The literal phrase there is, I hit it over and over again. I hit my body. Now, that sounds bad. That sounds masochistic. That sounds legalistic. That sounds like what Martin Luther was doing before he got a revelation that we're saved by faith. He doesn't say, I, did, I, I beat my body up so that I can get to heaven. He doesn't say, I beat my body up because I've sinned and I need to punish myself. He doesn't say, I beat myself up so I, God will feel sorry for me. He says, I beat my body so I can make it my slave so that I won't be disqualified. Now, what's he saying? Well, look at the context. What are we talking about? We're talking about athletes. Athletes put their body through a whole bunch of training that doesn't feel good at the time. But it, it leads to a reward, doesn't it? This isn't about you feeling pain or suffering. This is about you treating your body like it's a tool Treating yourself like, hey, I want to win, so I'm going to have to use self-control. You know, Donovan Bailey, when he would run that race and make us all proud to be Canadians, he's not eating a, a triple bacon cheeseburger before the race. And it doesn't matter how much he's craving a triple bacon cheeseburger because he says, my body, I need to treat my body differently than Joe down the street. Because Joe down the street isn't competing for what I'm competing for. 
Now, I'm sure even Donovan Bailey could look over at Joe and say, boy, I wish I could eat that poutine right now. Boy, that looks good. Boy, that snack looks good. Oh, it would be good not to have to go to the gym today. But he knew if I want to win the prize, I live different than Joe. That's not a, that's not a, a bash on Joe. That's just, I'm going to do this. I've heard many great men and women of God say this, others may, but I may not. They wouldn't go and tell somebody, you shouldn't do that. You should That's when we get into legalism. Legalism is often when God sets a standard for you and you make it the standard for everybody else. Often legalists, the standard is right, right below them. That's where the standard is. You know, there are things that God says to you. As we grow, God's going to tell you to lay things down that, that aren't a problem for somebody else, but for you. For you, I don't want you to do that. Why not, God? Why can't I have fun like they have fun? Oh, I want you to have fun, but I also want you to win. And you're, you're destined for greatness here. So stop asking what's permissible and start asking what's profitable. Yes. What's profitable? And you won't know what's profitable until you know what you're aiming for. Paul knew what, I, what he was aiming for. I do all this so that I might save some, so that I might win more. He was a man who knew what the finish line looked like. And guys, by the time he got to the finish line, he knew he got there. And he writes to his young buddy and says, I made it. I did it. I accomplished my race. I finished my race. I fought the good fight. My course is done. There's a crown waiting for me. Mission accomplished. You can't say mission accomplished until you figured out what the mission is, right? And when you know what the mission is, not only can you say mission accomplished, you figure out what it's going to take to get there. Jesus said, unless you know how to count the cost, you can't follow me. He says, nobody starts building something. Nobody starts building a wall or a tower and doesn't count the cost of what it's going to take to build the thing. You guys wouldn't do that, would you? Some of you are in construction or you, some of you have been builders you wouldn't start building a bu- building and then later figure out what materials you'll need you you figure that out first now maybe you need to adjust later on i've been on the receiving end of those adjustments plenty of times the estimate is low and then the estimate grows and grows and grows as time goes on but you do count the cost before you go a soldier counts the cost before he signs up he may not know He may not really be aware. He might be naive and innocent and think this will be easy. He may not know fully, but he still has to count the cost as best as he understands it. We need to know what our mission is. We need to know what matters in this life. And when you know what matters to Jesus, you'll know what matters to you. And when you know what matters to you, you'll know what it takes to get there. And nothing else will matter as much as getting there. That's my prize. Paul, this was his prize. I want to win more. I want to save some, and I'll use any means to do it. I'll do anything. I'll act like a Jew. I'll act like a Gentile. I'm just going to save them. Now, remember, if you say, well, I want to save save drug dealers, so I'm going to become a drug dealer. No. He said, I still keep the law of Christ. I haven't forsaken that. But I'm not going to come up to the Gentile and say, I can't eat with you. For I'm a Jew of tribe of Benjamin. I, I, uh, I have a long lineage and I can't eat with you. I can't eat with you dirty swine eating Gentiles. I'm not going to even sit at your table. No, he didn't do that. 
He ate with them. He worshiped with them. He loved them. And yet, he kept to the standard of Christ. Well, we can do the same thing. Let's ask ourselves, what's profitable here? And the only way you know what's profitable is you know, if you know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is my goal in life. And that's what you need to ask yourself. What is my goal? And have I counted the cost to make it there? And is my goal something I came up with or is it something given by God? And there'll be times in your life where you're like the Apostle Paul who's about to go up and preach to a bunch of cities. Would everybody in the room agree that preaching, that when your mission is to save more, then you should preach in every town you come across, right? But remember, even our best understanding of the mission has to be submitted to God. So even though Paul's best understanding is my goal is to win more, to win more, I got to preach more. When Jesus says, don't preach in Asia Minor, Paul obeys. That doesn't seem to match his mission. But the mission above all missions is to serve the Lord. So if the good master says, I know that you think this is a good idea, don't do it then don't do it. So when I was a a young preacher, that meant there were times where somebody would invite me to come speak somewhere and it sounded great. But unless the Lord said do it, don't do it. Why? Because if if you take every opportunity, if you do everything, if you keep yourself so busy, you'll get so busy that you'll miss what God has for you. You'll miss the wide open door that he has for you. And if Paul had gone up there, to Bithynia, if he had gone up there and preached in Asia Minor, he wouldn't have been at the right place at the right time to get a vision to go to Macedonia. So the mission comes from the master. And the mission is above everything else, but the master's will is above all of that. I want us to count that cost. I want us to count it. Know it. Know that that cost isn't the cost of you getting to heaven. But that cost is the cost of whether you're running just to run and participate or whether you're running to win. And the time that we live in now, we don't need busybodies. We don't need people staying busy. We need people busy about the master's business. And there's a big difference. Work is good, but God didn't call you simply to work. He called you to the works that he prepared for you, and he prepared you for them. God didn't call you to be busy. He called you to be fruitful. And Jesus said, busyness is the enemy of fruitfulness. Because when you get so busy with life, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, it chokes out the word and you become unfruitful. Don't be busy, be fruitful. Sometimes fruitfulness has seasons of of busyness, but that's not the goal. The goal is what is the door that God opened for me? And I I ask this, I I pray this all the time, that he that has the keys to the door, the key of David that opens the doors that no man can shut, and what does it also say? He shuts doors no man can open. So I ask the Lord regularly, Lord, would you open doors that I'm supposed to go to, and would you shut doors that I'm not supposed to go to? Just shut them. And be, be aware, and that's the thing, we have to have our ears wide open and our hearts open to receive it. And I believe that you will. I mean, God brings us all sorts of people every Sunday and Wednesday. We have new people and old people. And what I mean is new believers and mature believers all at once. And everybody's at different levels. But as long as we're running in the same direction, we can all get along here and, 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 and grow together. But 
I would say this, as you become more and more mature in your faith, seek the profitable. As you become more and more mature in your faith, you'll find there are more and more doors open to you. Choose the doors that are opened by God. Ignore the other ones. As you become more and more mature, let's count the cost of what it's going to take to win the prize. And let's lay everything down for that prize. Amen. Stand up with me tonight.